preaching of God's Word is found in Galatians and chapter 2, particularly verse 20. The current afternoon series is through the Scripture's teaching on conversion, and so we're not tied to a chapter or a particular book, of course, beyond the Bible, but we rather take up a variety of passages that help cast light on the Scripture's teaching regarding conversion. We come to one such before us as it speaks of what a converted man's life is. And so just for the sake of context, Paul is refuting the errors of the Judaizers who had influenced the churches of Galatia. Galatia is a region in Asia Minor, roughly where Turkey is today. And those churches had been impacted by teachers bearing the title Christian teacher who had yet brought in the ceremonial observances of the Old Testament and were teaching that if you wish to be a good Christian, you need to observe these things in addition to the way of faith. And so Paul's correcting that. And yet so as to balance his teaching, he shows that the converted one who is saved by grace alone through faith is one who by grace lives a holy life. And so we'll consider that as we read now verses 20 and 21 for our attention. Galatians 2 verses 20 and 21. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh... I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, Christ is dead in vain. It's particularly there, verse 20, that we give our attention a verse that of itself is worthy of a series of of sermons, and you would do well to search out such books as open this passage. But it's to verse 20 we look to gather insight regarding the nature of conversion and what it produces. So you'll notice our title is A New Life, and Paul is identifying and expressing that as he says, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, which may strike us at first as somewhat confusing. How is it that I live, yet not I? How is it that I can live, though I'm crucified? All of which is, of course, worthy of our meditation. But the text itself is worth noting a few things. This language of I am crucified with Christ is something that is familiar language to us, but it needs to be pressed for the weight of what it means. Crucifixion certainly as Paul would have witnessed it and as his audience would have witnessed it, was an agonizing death. It wasn't quickly done. It certainly would not meet the standards of a so-called humane and dignified ending to a human life. It was actually developed for the exact opposite. It was meant to cause the languishing of the one crucified. It was meant not only to inflict pain, but to inflict such pain 
as would last for days. And so the most famous crucifixion, of course, that of our Lord, is actually an exception to the norm in that He was crucified over the span of a number of hours and died. And this, we have no hesitation in affirming, is because in His crucifixion there was the added and unseen weight of the wrath of God consuming Him. So that body and soul is, as it were, given up. But you remember the two criminals on either side had need that their legs be broken so that their death would hasten. And that was because their support by which they could push up, which would cause pain, their feet being nailed, so that their diaphragm could extend and they breathe, was now removed from them. And so they essentially suffocated in the agonizing death, having their legs broken. But crucifixion itself would often last for days. Brethren, it takes not much time to consider how difficult such a thing would be. Not only in the pain that you can enter upon, but the things often unseen. The insects gathering, swarming, and yes, even birds coming unto those who were still breathing on the cross. Now, why do we make this point as grotesque as it may be? Because the Word demands you understand it. It's not that we have any desire to lay out this uh, rather unseemly consideration beyond the fact that first century Christians instantly had access to that thought. Whereas most in the church today look upon the cross as a decoration. Many in the world today look at it as a part of jewelry. But for those in the early century, the first century would have known that it was a tormenting death. And so in the text when Paul says, I am crucified with Christ, he's including this identity with Christ, of course, but he's also expressing the nature of his death, that it has been an agonizing death through Christ to his sins. And you'll notice, however true that is, he says, nevertheless, I live. I'm still alive. And yet it's not my own principle of life that supports me. It is Christ who lives in me. So that now the life which I live in the flesh that is in the body, is not using the word flesh there in some sinful sense, but simply synonymous to the notion of body, he says, I live by the faith or by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. What Paul is helping the Galatians and us to see as well is that there is a new life for the converted person. In fact, in some sense we can say it this way, there's no life but by this new life. Because it's only this life which is truly matching what life is meant to be. Life in fellowship with God. This is why unbelievers are said to be dead in their sins and trespasses. You can take their pulse. You can measure their breathing. You can hook up machinery and little ways of detecting brain waves and other such things. And yet, spiritually, they're dead. Whereas, 
spiritually, the believer is alive in Christ. Now, as we noted in the reading, it's important to see this in context. Paul has been dealing with and will continue to deal with the fact that in the Galatian churches, there had been the false teaching that had come in saying that you Christians, you need to be circumcised. You're Gentiles. Well, the old covenant people were circumcised. You need to be circumcised. You need to observe these dietary restrictions because, well, you're Gentiles and you're being brought into the covenant, so you need to do so. And there was clever ways and complex ways of doing so. Paul would deal with this not only in Galatians, but in Colossians. The book of Hebrews deals with it as well. The apostles had to deal with it. And his fundamental point in these books and in these treatments is to say, those things are not the way of being accepted as righteous in God's sight. The only way is by faith alone. And so it is that Paul is quite clear in this point, if you look, for instance, at the opening of the book, Galatians chapter 1, he's preaching of the grace of Christ, verse 6, but he's marveling that they have been removed from the same and that others had come, verse 7, to twist or pervert the gospel of Christ. And you'll notice he says that if, verse 9, any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, Let him be accursed. Why is that? Well, because there's only one gospel, one way of acceptance, one way of peace with God, and it is by faith alone in Christ alone. Even Peter had been swept aside and swept up in this matter which he rebuked to his face in the presence of others. And so you'll notice in verse 16 of chapter 2, Quite simply, Paul says, a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now, whenever the gospel is rightly preached, it leaves this sense of well, then what are we supposed to do? Or it leaves the question, well, what about obedience and what about those things? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said on several occasions that when the gospel is rightly preached, it ought to give rise to the question, what about the law then? You know, are we supposed to do nothing about the law? And Paul deals with that more subtly in Galatians than he does in Romans, but in the same manner. When he says, listen, it's not by the works of the law that we're justified, But as it were, lest you be confused or left with questions, let me be clear to you, verse 20, I am crucified with Christ, yet I live, yet not I, but Christ which liveth in me, and so on. And so what he's getting at in context is he's strongly asserting justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But in order that there be no confusion, he's saying the same grace which saves us in our justification, transforms us as well so that by Christ's living in us, we're able to walk according to the will of God. That's not our justification. But it is a part of the reality of salvation. So you can think of salvation as an umbrella under which is justification and sanctification. Distinct things. 
And so it is, as our catechism says, the one is an act of God's free grace, justification. The other, sanctification, is the work of God's free grace. And yet they're all salvation by grace, different aspects. Or you can think of a prism held up to one beam of light and different colors come from that one beam. They're distinct. The blue's not the red, the red's not the yellow, and so on. But they come from the same beam. So it is, justification is not sanctification, and sanctification is not justification. But they are aspects, though distinct, of the salvation God gives us freely by grace. So this helps us to see one thing for sure. It's not justification by grace and sanctification by works. And nor is it we're justified and don't care about sanctification. It's justification by grace, and it's sanctification by grace. And that's one thing that Paul's emphasizing here in a very beautiful expression of the union he has now with Christ and the communion he enjoys with Christ. Our catechism in question 87 asks, what is repentance unto life? And among the other things it asserts is the biblical teaching that repentance uh, is, among other things, the endeavoring after new obedience. New obedience. Not the obedience of the old man out of servile fear, thinking to earn by his works acceptance with God. That's been done away with. Essentially, that's what Paul has been saying. We don't obey God in the thought that He's going to reward us with justification. We don't obey God in order to obtain deliverance from our sins. We don't obey God in order that He would say, now I declare you righteous. And so He said, we're justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law. The works of the law shall justify no one. But then He says, of course, there is a new obedience by grace of Christ dwelling in us. I've mentioned before, and it's a sad thing to mention, none less than a professor at a Reformed seminary mocked publicly the notion of a Christian glorying in Christ living in his heart. Get that in your minds. A teaching officer, ordained minister of the Gospel, teaching seminary students who themselves would become ministers of the Gospel, publicly ridiculed the notion that a large aspect of Christianity is Christ living in our hearts. Of course, we're ready to correct the trivialized notion that many have. But do you see what Paul says in this verse? He says, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Brethren, what he's pointing out here is the new life of the converted. So we wish to look at three things of this new life. A new source, a new exercise, and a new confidence. As we consider the conversion, or the converted, having a new life. Well, What is then the new source? And this is important to indicate. There's a form of obedience that an unregenerate, unconverted man can have. And though it may outwardly look similar, it will be from a different source. So we can take an example for a moment. If you have, for instance, somebody that is considering, what should I do with reference to telling the truth? Well, they might search the Scriptures, an unconverted man and a converted man. 
or they hear a sermon, or they ask mom and dad, or their spouse tells them, or somehow their conscience convicts them, and they realize, I should not bear false witness. I need to tell the truth. The source is different for the performance. There will be other things that are different as well, but the source will be different between the converted man and the unconverted man in their telling the truth. One thing that we can see is that for the converted man, it's no longer himself. He is not the source of obedience. He's not the supply of strength unto obedience. He is not the wellspring of his soul's ability. So Paul says, Nevertheless I live, yet not I. It's not I actually who is the living part. It's no longer self. It's not my understanding governing me. It's not my wisdom that's directing me. It's not my strength giving me the ability to perform these things. Why? Because He's already answered that. I'm crucified. I have been languishing upon the cross so that I've died to myself. I have no source within me of my own doing. I have no supply in me of my own procuring. All is zapped from me. It's gone. I've been emptied of any strength. I have none. Whereas the unconverted is full of self. And the thought is, I can do that. I'll go ahead and do that. Give me an opportunity. I'll get right at it. This can-do mentality in the life of the unconverted is an expression of the self-righteous principle of the unconverted. I'll do it. I can do it. And you hear some people, professed Christians talking, and it's as if all of their talking begins with I. I did this, I did that, I went here, I went there, I've done all of these things. Of course, there are right ways to speak of that. Paul himself does it, as well as other Christians. But it ought to be tempered by this clear testimony, as Paul here clearly testifies. I did this, I live, yet... Not I. Christ who lives in me. What's the new source? It's Christ. Christ is not only believed upon, but Christ is so embraced and brought into one's soul that it's Christ doing the living. Now, it's not Christ believing. It's not Christ doing the actions. But it's Christ supplying the life that the Christian then is able to perform those things. So, for instance... Christ uses the imagery of the vine and the branches. Now in some sense we can say it's really not the vine that is directly itself bearing the fruit. The branches are bearing the fruit. But it's the vine which supplies to the branches the vital part, the living part, the ability to bear then the fruit. So the branch is made fruitful. How? By what source? By the sap that the vine is providing to the branch. And Christ says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Apart from me, you understand it, you can do nothing. This is why for the Christian, Christ is everything. Because without Christ, the Christian's nothing. Without Christ, there is no faithfulness. Without Christ, there is no strength against temptation. Without Christ, there is no obedience. At least not of the true and sincere way. There may be forms, and yet it's gritting, and 
it's, you know, with all of this bitterness and frustration. There's patience, but it's a constrained patience. You know, so simple as the light turns red and well, I know I'm not to spout off and so on. So I'm not going to do that. And we get frustrated and the brow furrows and everything's out of order. But at the end of the day, we can say, well, I didn't say anything wrong. And yet we step back and say, well, that's really not obedience, is it? Because we're to be patient. We're actually to endure with joy. We're actually to exercise faith. And so such a simple thing can be so clear a display of the difference between outward and formal obedience and sincere and real obedience. And the only way to the real is by a real fellowship with Christ. This new source of life is one supplied by Christ. He's the vine that supplies the vital principle of life. If you abide in Me and My words abide in you, He says, this remaining, this inhabiting one of another, then you shall ask and these things will be given. You'll bear much fruit and so on. Christ is elsewhere called the head of the Christian. And the head, of course, supplies the guiding governance of the rest of the body. We think and so we do. And so our thoughts are no longer our thoughts, but it's Christ's thoughts that are our thoughts. And so we consider His Word, and His Word teaches us this, and we say, well, whatever else I would think, I no longer am the one calling the shots. Christ is living in me. And so we consult His Word, and we pray and commune with Him, and He directs and supplies us the instruction and the source and the power of all that is needed for our lives. So let me push this upon you for a moment and ask you, by what strength do you do anything you're doing? By what strength, professed Christian, communicant member, baptized member, by what strength do you go about your life of prayer, your life of Bible reading, your life of obedience, your life of witnessing, all of these things, your life of worship, Because the unconverted man or woman comes with a sense of ability. I can. The converted man comes with a posture of, I only can by Christ. It's never hidden. It's never veiled. It's never shadowy. The Christian has a conscious and deliberate sense that it is Christ only that I can do anything. You think of how Paul says it elsewhere. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. It's a conscious understanding and it's a conscious apprehension, embrace of the believer. I can do all things, but only as Christ strengthens me. We know something of this in natural ways. There are certain people in our lives, perhaps our spouse, perhaps our children, perhaps a dear Christian friend, where we're ministered strength by them in support. And we feel now, as it were, now I'm able. They've ministered help to me. But you see, that's only of this relational encouragement. This is actually superior to that because it's Christ actually communicating to His people that life whereby then we are able to walk in conformity to His Word. The life of the Christian is only by communing 
with Christ. This leads secondly to a new exercise or activity. Notice Paul says, Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh or in the body, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Now to clarify, he's not saying by the Son of God's faith, but rather by faith that is upon or in the Son of God. The faith which concerns the Son of God. And this is really the vital exercise. It's Christ living in us, but one aspect of His life in us is that He gives us grace whereby faith exercises itself to embrace Him. So Christ comes, as it were, and embraces us, and He gives us life. It's as if the miraculous touch that comes to the dead body and He touches and it lives. And then what does that body do? With its hands, it lays hold of Christ, never desiring to be separated from Him. We understand, of course, Mary at the tomb when she falls upon Christ. And yet we also understand Christ's words, touch me not. And it's far stronger than that. Cleave not unto me, for I have not yet ascended unto my Father. But we understand the desire of Mary to lay hold of Christ and not to let Him go. And yet Christ would teach her the embrace of faith. I ascend to my Father. It's not a local embrace that is needed. It's what Paul's getting at. It's the spiritual embrace of faith. And so this new source, which is given us graciously, is enjoyed by the exercise of gracious faith. Living upon Jesus Christ. Now how does one do that? Well, Surely it's such an experience that transcends our ability fully to explain. The Christian knows it by experience. There are some things that we can say regarding how it happens. Christ gives us promises. And those promises are assurances to us of His goodwill to perform what He promises. And so He promises to be with us. We sing in Psalm 23 that the Lord is my shepherd I'll not want. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, Thou art with me. Thy rod and Thy staff, they comfort me. And what does faith do with such promises? Well, it's led many times to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And yet faith says, Christ, You've said You'll be with me. And so I'm exercising this trust that You would provide Your presence to me. I'm surrounded by afflictions and enemies. And Your Word says that You provide a table for me which is furnished with all that is needed. Please feed my soul. I trust You to do it. Christ offers up His Express desire to His Father. Sanctify them by Thy truth. Thy Word is truth. And we come as Christians and we come to places where we say, I'm not as holy as I ought to be. And we perceive in Christ that He is the source and giver of holiness. I sanctify Myself that these might be sanctified. And we come to Christ and we say, I'm unworthy of it. I acknowledge it. I'm worthy to be cast off. But it's your expressed will that I be sanctified. So I come to you that you would supply me more growth in understanding and repentance and obedience and so on. Your promises of writing your law upon my heart. Oh, it's so faint and it's not deep. I pray engraving it more clearly upon me. This is faith coming to Christ 
trusting in Him. Of course there's the faith of justification that He is our peace. But in context, Paul's not talking about that in this verse. He's talking about the outliving of grace in the life of the Christian. The outworking of what God has put into us. Yes, of course, we live by faith in the Son of God regarding our justification, which is something that Paul will return to in Galatians 3.11. But that no man is justified by the law on the side of God, it is evident for the just shall live by faith. But here, it's speaking of the conforming of our lives to His holy will. Now for a moment, notice the difference that Paul is getting at. In Galatia, there were those saying you need to observe circumcision, dietary laws, and other such festivals of the Jewish calendar in order to do this. And Paul says, totally wrong, you need to exercise faith in Christ. You want to know what's different? A radical difference of possibility. It is fundamentally possible for you to be circumcised, to observe the calendar, to observe dietary laws. It is utterly impossible, apart from conversion, to exercise faith. It's easy to dress up in civil ways and religious ways a life that is untransformed. It is impossible for an unconverted person to know anything of the exercise of faith. And so what Paul's getting at here is the radical difference, as we've talked about the source, the source of the converted man is Christ. The source of the unconverted man is self. Well, self can do all of those things that the Judaizers want them to do. Self can do all the things that false religions want them to do. It's not really that difficult to observe certain hours of the day for prayer. It's not really that difficult to observe Ramadan. It's not really that difficult to observe Jewish feasts. It really isn't that difficult to do those outward things. In fact, it's quite simple. The only difficulty for our age is that we live in an age of self-indulgence. But that's quickly being challenged. If you pay attention, you see that on bestseller labels are various forms of neo-Stoicism, because the world's starting to see the emptiness of a self-indulgent life. If you pay attention, you start to see the applauding of these ways of mystical religions and you know seasons of fasting and other things. Well, what's going on? It's not that in any of those there's a conversion in any true sense of the word. It's that the flesh is being turned into a more refined way of self-justification. It's doing what the flesh can. But the Christian's life is not something the flesh can do. It requires the death of self and the life of Christ within. And when that's present, it will give the exercise of faith. And so what does that look like, perhaps, on a day-to-day life for the Christian? Well, In some ways, it won't look differently from a hypocrite. A hypocrite and a true Christian can read the Bible and will read the Bible. Hypocrite and a true Christian will go to the church on the Lord's Day and worship God. Hypocrite and a Christian will tell others about Christ and so on. But let's take reading the Bible as but one example of others. The hypocrite will read it in his own power, in his own diligence, in his own discipline, learn many things, and yet never once will he exercise faith. Never once will be the the tender 
expression of a soul casting itself upon Christ. Never once will there be the thought of that is a radical standard that I can't reach of myself. So I cast all upon You, O God, in Christ. And I say, give me life that I may walk in this way. The hypocrite doesn't really fathom the depth of such a statement. Love your enemies and bless them that curse you. It can know the restraint of getting by. It can know the self, as it were, governing of resisting the impulse to lash out in bitterness. But it can actually know the exercise of loving one's enemy. For that to take place, there must be the different source we've spoken of, but the different source accessed by the exercise of faith. I must die to myself. Isn't it interesting Paul doesn't say I was crucified with Christ? But he uses a present way of saying it. I am. I still am. I am being. It's still taking place. The flesh, the sinful part of me, is still writhing in agony upon the cross. And yet something new has been added. that Christ is now living in me. Brethren, you are at war if a Christian because you naturally want to pander to your selfish ways. But faith doesn't look to self. It looks to Christ and says, I'm done trying in my own strength. I'm done trying to bring down your standards to something I can manage. I'm done trying to put on the face of religion in my own strength because it's all fake. It's all artificial. It's all superficial. None of it is good. And so, Lord, I want to know what You require as far as the holy walk. I realize I'm declared righteous by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but that grace You've given has also transformed me. And now I want to walk in the liberty of the sons of God. And I can't do that of my own strength. So teach me more of Christ Open to me as provision. Open to me as promises. And notice how this faith is fixed upon the Son of God. It's by the faith of the Son of God. We're right to speak of union and communion with Christ. Union is that joining of our souls with His, which we've spoken of as the new source. Communion is this enjoying and drawing from Him what He supplies. So it's not just the relationship, it's the enjoying of that relationship. Christ saying, I'm yours and here's what I offer to you. And faith saying, thank you, O God, and give that to me and let me know the power of these things. So Christ conveys to us this grace whereby our faith lays hold of Him and draws from Him all that He supplies that we may now live a life, a true life, not artificial or merely mimicry, but a genuine walking in the ways of God, which leads us then to a new confidence. You know what the self-righteous has nothing of? Any actual assurance of God's love. He can use the words. She can speak the tones. They can say the right things. But if you were to open their soul, you would see missing the knowledge of the love of God. 
Because every attempt ultimately is to merit acceptance with God by his own or her own works. But the whole of what Paul is doing, which by the way is far superior to the Pharisees and Sadducees of his day and the Pharisees and Sadducees of our day and any day, for he's actually walking in Christ and Christ in him in fellowship with God and true obedience and so on. But notice, if you were to peer into Paul's heart, what you would find is an ample and abundant supply of assurance. And what's this confidence of? He loved me and gave Himself for me. We have no hesitation in saying the following. If the Apostle Paul were around today, he would be the first to condemn the excesses of charismatic Pentecostalism. But I have no hesitation in saying as well, he would criticize the deficiency of the Reformed to own this simple and fundamental truth. The ability to say, Christ loved me and gave Himself for me. Brethren, this assurance is fundamental to the true Christian life. Because if you lack it, most of your works will be tainted by a self-righteous attempt to gain from God the thing you lack. I don't know, and so I'm going to do this in order that I might gain from God. I'm going to go through obedience to the Ten Commandments so that I might learn that God loves me. But think even of the form of the Ten Commandments. The children will know this. What precedes the Ten Commandments? What's the preface to the Ten Commandments? It's a word of assurance. I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Then it moves on to, thou shalt have no other gods before me. The Lord provides us the assurance of His fellowship, the assurance of His mercies, which then buoy us and strengthen us and enlarge us to walk in His ways. You read through Psalm 119. Oh, would that we would attempt. It's not beyond us. But make an honest attempt to memorize the whole of the psalm. To take it and you see this strict concern about obedience to God's Word. And yet everywhere is this fragrance of fellowship and love and delight the most strict obedience to God's law is only possible by the most vital enjoyment of His fellowship. These aren't contrary to one another. They're actually hand in hand all the time in Scripture. If you were to search the history of the world and ask who is the holiest one ever to have lived that walked in the strictest obedience to every jot and tittle of God's law. It wouldn't be a Puritan. It wouldn't be a Pharisee, certainly. It would be the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ walked in express and explicit detailed obedience to every commandment. Every one. And yet if you were to ask as well, all throughout history, who is the most loving and the most conscious of God's love? It would be the Lord Jesus Christ. We say, well, that's the Son of God, so that's not entirely fair, and you need to correct yourself because He's also fully man. He is truly man. 
and truly as man, he truly did consciously cultivate the knowledge of the love of God. And by this wondrous working, he caused, as it were, this outflow of love to God. Truly, there was this work. But if you set Christ aside even, you look at Paul. You look at Epaphroditus. You look at Apollos and others in the New Testament. You look at Isaiah. You look at Moses and others, imperfect as they are. And yet they never play fast and loose with God's commandments. And they're earnest in obedience. And yet they are full in the assurance of God's love as well. These things come together. That to try and separate them is to destroy the harmony of what they join to produce. And so you'll notice this new confidence is in many ways the renewed source unto the new exercise of all that we've spoken of. The knowledge that He loved me and gave Himself for me. It's that last part that removes any attempt of meritorious obedience because He gave Himself for me. So I'm not giving myself to fulfill the law. I know I can't do that in order to be accepted with God. Christ has done that for me. And yet His love, which then led Him to give Himself for me, is what motivates me, not unto my justification, but unto the new obedience to live for Him, living by Him. See, brethren, the whole of all that the Christian experiences is that of a new life supplied by, enjoyed with, and exercised upon the love of God in Christ. One of Paul's prayer, prayers is that the love of God would be better known by the Lord's people. Elsewhere he speaks of the love of God which is shed abroad in our hearts. It's this new confidence that instills within us a joyous approach to the most difficult tasks of the Christian life. And though it demands the agonizing, crucifying of what remains of our old man, yet it also is supported by the new life which Christ gives that we may indeed live for Him. That in the end we can say the love of God constrains us with joy unto these things. Well, brethren, much more to be said of this new life. But for a moment, ask yourself if what Paul here expresses is true of you. Is there in your experience a conscious renouncing of yourself? Do you consciously, both within your own consciousness and in prayer before the Lord, express in one way or the other, not I. Paul says, I live, yet not I. Is there an ability before the Lord without any hesitation to say, I can't do this on my own. You're not saying, just teach me, just give me the instructions, then I'll get it. I'm a self-learner, I've got it. It's not like you're the proverbial man who throws the directions away and say, I'll figure it out. But nor is it that you're the person who takes the directions and say, I'll figure it out. You're saying, you can give me the clearest instructions. You can make it crystal clear to my mind's eye. And yet if you leave me to myself, 
I will do nothing that would honor you. Speaking with a sister this week, the larger catechism is a much neglected treasure. If you look at the petitions regarding the Lord's Prayer, you'll see this common form, all of which begins with an acknowledging of our sins. I acknowledge, when we pray this petition, we acknowledge our sins. We acknowledge our profanity. We acknowledge we're under uh, uh, bondage to our sins. We acknowledge we're worthy of no, nothing. No food, no drink, no mercy, nothing at all. But the petition is teaching us to cast all upon God for His merciful provision. Does that at all strike any semblance of what your prayer life is like? That you come to God and say, unless you give grace it's all in vain. I won't be able to teach my children. I won't be able to overcome the slightest of temptations. I won't be able to do anything of any good for your kingdom at all unless the Son of God lives in me and through me. You see, the self-righteous man has no time for that. It's fanaticism. It's not all at all uh, applauding to their own works. The self-righteous man is like the Pharisee in Christ's parable where he says, I thank thee God that I'm not like other men are extortioners, murderers, and so on, or even like this publican. I fast, I give tithes of all that I receive, and so on and so forth. So he prayed thus to himself, Christ says. The whole of his religious exercise, though formally expressing is actually a praying with himself. Everything that the self-righteous, the hypocrite, the unconverted man does is by himself and for himself. The Christian, of course, struggles with that. But the new life planted within him brings him more and more to cast all upon Christ. I would do nothing. I can do nothing except You give me help. I can do nothing. I cannot even pray, except You give me life to pray. I cannot read Your Word rightly, though I be a professor of literature, or English grammar, or Greek, or Hebrew, or anything else. I will derive no benefit, except You give me help. Does that strike any semblance of reality in your life? Because if it doesn't, I'm not saying perfectly, but if there's no reality of that, how can it be said in any reality that the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God? Because Paul is getting at this point, the life of the converted is a life upon Christ of Christ in Him, of Christ through Him. This is the life of the Christian. A conscious relying and living upon the provision of Christ given Him. Is there a daily and a regular appealing to and an embracing of Christ, not only for your pardon, which certainly is needed, but for your ongoing growth and purity? Christian, though it is there, know how each of us needs this. 
Should it not be more pronounced? Should it not be more explicit? Why are we embarrassed before the Lord to own our deficiencies? Why is it that when we become convicted, we're so paralyzed to admit to the Lord that we actually need Him not only to pardon us, but to give us life? When He has, with no hesitation, afforded to us the treasury of all graces in Christ and saying, you may not live upon yourself anymore. You must not live upon your own resources anymore. You must live upon My Son. Times of war, particularly war that drags on, oftentimes governments come up empty. You can read of our own nation's history, the American Civil War, or however else you wish to term it. And both governments of the Union and Confederacy grew quite low on resources. Particularly, there were seasons when armies were forced to fight without receiving wages. They were living upon their own resources in this war. Here's the good news for the Christian. That's not what God calls the Christian to. In fact, He says, you must not live upon any other resource than what I supply to you. And all of that supply is in Christ. Think of what Paul says, in Him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Him is the fullness of the Godhead dwelling bodily. He has made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. It is Christ that is all for us. And it's upon Christ that uh, Paul looks and leans and trusts. So Christian, look for a moment to Christ who is your life. And in Him see a most willing and able supply of life for every way of holiness, every task of obedience, that not only formally and outwardly you can perform it, but with the greatest sincerity and life and joy you may go forth and do it by the strength of Christ. And as you do so, do so in the confidence that it is this Savior who loved you and gave Himself for you and has not left you but dwells in you now and always. Would you stand with me for prayer?